places. Let's see, Matthew 27. We're just going to look at a couple verses in Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2. And mostly we're going to be parked in Luke 22. So find Luke 22 as well, so that when I get there, you can be ready to go. I want to make sure we have time to listen to this uh, special message at the end. We're going to be looking at the Alarm Cock Sounds Part 2. And you won't believe this. Yes, you will. But next week, we're going to look at the Alarm Cock Sounds Part 3. <laughs> the last time I taught this 15 years ago, I gave those poor women all three of these lessons in one. I don't know. Did you guys sit here for two hours? You must have. I don't know how I did it. Um, but the alarm cock sounded not only for Peter, which we looked at last week, but the alarm cock sounded for Israel as well. And we're going to look at that today. And then, Lord willing, next week, the alarm cock sounded for a third person. And that person was, yes, Judas Iscariot. So each of those is really a lesson in itself. So this has turned out to be a three-part study. All right, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time and then get right into our lesson. Father God, we do thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this mild, wonderful winter we've had so far. We do so much appreciate it, Lord, and, and we thank you for the beauty of your creation. We see you everywhere as we look at trees and just the sky and the stars, and we thank you for creating this world. We thank you for creating us in your sovereign plan, and that in that plan you knew we would fall into sin, but you have already provided for us a Savior, and we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus was so willing to come to this earth and experience all the rejection and the misunderstanding and the abuse and the suffering and the death for our sakes so that we could be eternally with him in heaven, with you, Father, in heaven, and that you and he would be glorified through your grace and your mercy. And we thank you, Father, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Thank you for the new day that you have provided for us, for the new day you provided for Peter, and for the new day you will provide one day yet for Israel. Lord, we don't want to ever, ever experience the new day that Judas did because it was a new day of doom, eternal doom. Now we ask that your spirit would have his will and way in every heart here, that you would help your servant to speak clearly and quickly, and that you would indeed bless all of us for having been here this morning in your word and in fellowship with one another. For we do pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, as we know, we left off last week with Peter in the midst of a curse-laced third denial of his Lord when two sovereignly synchronized events occurred simultaneously. One was the second cock-a-doodle-doo of the courtyard cock, and the second was the look of the Creator Christ. The cock's crow opened Peter's ears. Remember, he didn't really hear that first cock crowed when he crowed. I'm sure it was the same cock, same rooster, but he didn't hear that first, er, 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 but he did hear the second one, right? So that cock opened his ears, but the Lord's look opened what? His eyes and his heart. Both of those things worked together to wake up a sleeping giant named Peter. Thanks to the intercessory prayers of the Lord, Peter was finally awoken from his spiritual stupor to remember that what he had just done was exactly what Jesus had predicted earlier that night. No matter how much Peter had disagreed with the Lord's forecast of events when they were in that upper room, those events had indeed come to pass precisely as Jesus had said they would. He had been betrayed by one of them, right? That rotten Judas when he showed up in Gethsemane and betrayed the Lord with his wicked kiss. And they all had scattered from him, just as he had said, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And now he, Peter, had just succumbed to not one, not two, but three denials of the very one he had vowed he would die for. The very one he had so adamantly proclaimed he would never in any wise deny. Remember that? In any wise. 
It was going to be a very, very rough day for Peter. This is getting in the way. How can I tuck it up? (laughs) I got it, I think. Um, A very rough day. I mean, it's starting out pretty bad, right? You know, when the rooster crows, that's the beginning of a new day. So this is a new day for Peter. Starts out really bad with him denying his Lord three times. But guess what? That day is going to get a whole lot worse, isn't it? Because the one that he had just denied was going to die on this day. And he wouldn't be able to tell him how sorry he was. He wouldn't be able to go to him and ask for his forgiveness. So Peter was going to have to live through Thursday, Friday, and Saturday just, you know, weeping his heart out, hating himself. Um, They would be unbearable days for him. I can't imagine how many tears he must have shed in those three days. But Sunday was a coming. How many of you heard years ago that a preacher, I don't know who he was, but he preached this powerful message. Do you remember who the preacher was? We couldn't remember yesterday, but it was a message entitled, But Sunday's Coming. Sunday's a coming. And Sunday was a coming for Peter. It was not only going to be the great day of the resurrection, but for Peter, it was going to be a great day of his restoration. So resurrection and restoration for Peter. Uh, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, Peter. Remember, all of us, no matter how bleak things might look and how bleak things might actually get, the Lord is still still in control, even in Terry's coughing. (laughs) The Lord is still in control. He is still on his throne. He will never be off of his throne. And he had just proven that to Peter, hadn't he? He had just proven to Peter that he was in control. Everything came to pass just as he had predicted. And you and I shouldn't forget that either, should we? No matter what thing, how, how awful things might look in this world. And 2012 is a pretty scary year with things happening worldwide. It's scary. Do you know more and more more Christians are being killed today, persecuted for their faith around the world than in any other century? I mean, it's just, it's really wicked out there. Lots of bad things are happening to Christians. And if the Lord tarries, it's coming our way as well. Are we prepared for it? I wonder how prepared. What if, what if what they did to the Lord should happen to us? You know, being arrested without a just cause, thrown in prison, bound, spit on, uh, abused. I mean, are we willing to really die for our faith? Are we passing that along to our children, our grandchildren? Because if we don't see it, I'm afraid surely they will if the Lord tarries. Let's pray that he doesn't. Let's pray that 2012 might be a really bad for the world, but not for Christians. <laughs> that maybe we'll be out of here. Wouldn't that be great? But he was in control. Even though Satan and man combined was throwing the worst they could come up with at him, he's still in control. Through this whole trial, all these trials, don't we see that? His composure and just, just it's amazing. Now, I wonder if you ever thought about this. When, when that second alarm cock sounded in, in Peter's life, where did Peter's eyes immediately turn? To Jesus, didn't they? To his Lord. The look of the Lord. Now, the Lord was up there on a balcony or somewhere upstairs. He had just been abused terribly. They spit on him. They punched him. They did everything that they had done to him. And then, the, you know, Peter's down below denying the, the cock crows the second time. And the Lord turns to look at Peter. But Peter had to turn to look at the Lord, didn't he? If he hadn't, the Lord's look could not have penetrated Peter's heart the way that it did and cause him to remember everything. So just think about this. As loud and as profane as the words were that were coming out of Peter's mouth, yet the focus of his eyes and his heart was upon his Lord, wasn't it? He didn't turn anywhere else with his look. He turns straight to the Lord. And there's going to be a huge contrast when we get to Judas and see when Judas regretted what he, what he had done. 
He didn't turn to the Lord. His focus and his heart turned elsewhere, inward toward himself and toward an escape route, really, because we know he went out and hung himself. But he didn't turn to the Lord as Peter did. So remember that. No matter what Peter was saying, his heart, I know they say out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, but in this case, it was a little different. (laughs) He was trying to protect his life. Well, even though Peter had sinned greatly, I don't want to, you know, downplay that. He had sinned greatly. He, He could be, and he would be, forgiven. He had genuine faith. You see, that's the big difference. Now, let me ask you this. Why was Peter in Caiaphas's courtyard, putting himself in harm's way and finding that he could not pass the temptation tests that came his way. Why was he there in the first place? Now, he shouldn't have been there, but why was he there? You, you tell me, why was he there? He really loved the Lord. He really loved the Lord. He was wrong, in everything that he did, but the bottom line is that Peter did love Jesus. He had put his faith in Jesus. He had left everything behind in order to follow Jesus. He truly did believe that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he believed that he was who he claimed to be, even though, of course, he didn't understand why he was allowing himself to let all these things happen. Why did he allow himself to be betrayed by Judas when he had not, when he had known ahead of time that Judas would betray him? Make sure I don't lose all that. Uh-oh, I lost it. Um, why did he let them arrest him? Why did he let them um, spit in his face? You know, he didn't understand all of that. But the bottom line is he did believe in him. He may, even though he, he doubted and even though he denied to save his own neck, he had put his faith in Jesus and he was one of his sheep. And he was being kept because he was a true sheep. He was being kept by his shepherd who prayed for him that his faith would not fail. Remember, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you and to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail and therefore it didn't all right let me put in my password (laughs) it's a bible verse i can't tell you which one because then you might (laughs) all right you want to come see what well it says play again it might be okay might be okay um i don't know why my computer does that it's supposed to stay there i just remind me every once in a while to click a key so i don't lose it again like that All right. But Peter, you know, he wouldn't have understood all this at this time. Uh, All he knew at this point is that Jesus truly was Lord. Just think of what Peter had seen. I mean, he has seen the Lord stand up in the middle of a storm in a boat, say, peace be still, and instant calm, right? Peter saw that. And another occasion in another storm, um, he had seen the Lord walk out to them on the top of the waves. And then Peter got out and walked for a little while also on top of the waves. He has seen him heal, cleanse lepers. He has seen him give sight to the blind. He has seen him raise dead people. And he saw him up on the Mount of Transfiguration where the glory of God, you know, just emanated out from him. He has seen all these things. He knows who Christ is. And now he's had that confirmed once again. Because the Lord's prophecies earlier that night have all been fulfilled. Or not all of them, but the ones he had said about his disciples and about Peter. So Peter's faith is confirmed. And think of Peter now, how he feels. This truly is the Christ, the Lord. And I have just failed him. I have failed him miserably. I have disowned the master. He was in absolute disgrace. He was tormented by his sin, by his arrogant pride that had brought him to this point. And so what did he do? He ran out into the night. Now, now a rooster crows when it's still a little bit dark, right? So it's still dark. He, Peter runs out of the courtyard. He should have left earlier, but he finally leaves the courtyard. He runs out into the night to just weep his heart out. But that was all good. 
that was good. The Lord, you know, had seen this approaching tragedy for Peter, but he had already looked beyond it, hadn't he? He looked beyond it and saw the brand new Peter resplendent in the power of a new life. And he had known all along, the Lord had, about this testing that would come Peter's way. And he allowed it to happen anyway, didn't he? Why? Why does he allow some of the trials to happen in our lives? Because he knows that it's going to be good for us in the long run. It's going to be, you know, all things do work together for good. Because Peter would emerge as a better, stronger man. And the Lord knew that. He says, and when thou art converted, what was he to do? Turn around and strengthen his brethren, which is exactly what Peter did the rest of his life. So his denials were going to be used as stepping stones to tremendous triumphs. So the cock crow, the cock crow, (laughs) always sounds funny, Uh, crew, the cock crew, No, here's what I want to say. The cock crow sounded a new day for Peter. That's correct. (laughs) It was a new day for him because all of his his, uh, profuse tears were those of genuine repentance. Not just regret, not just remorse, but genuine repentance. And Peter now had something that he really didn't have before. Something we all need. He had a broken and contrite heart, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. Peter hadn't really been very poor in spirit. Now he was. He had been humbled. And blessed are they that mourn. What, what, was, what do we need to mourn about? Sin, the sin in our lives. Peter finally saw, he finally realized the deceitfulness of his own heart. He realized that he couldn't really help himself. You know, a lot of people um, think that this is in the Bible. I know I've mentioned this before, but I've, my father used to say, the Bible says, and, <laughs> and then he would say this. And I've heard this even on the news. I've heard several newscasters say this. You know, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that? All right, where, show me the verse. <laughs> It isn't in there. It isn't in there. Actually, the whole Bible teaches a completely opposite concept. The Bible teaches that God helps those who realize, like Peter finally did, and like Jacob finally did, he helps those who realize they cannot help themselves. Apart from him, we can do nothing, nothing. Peter finally learned that. Well, the alarm cock also sounded a new new day for some others as well, but their new day was not as bright as Peter's. And in this lesson this morning, we're going to look at the Lord's third Jewish trial, which was held right after the dawn of this new day. In order to give some type of legal propriety to their, their notoriously unlawful proceedings, The chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled themselves together immediately after the dawning of this new day, which experts, time experts tell us, would have been 540 in the morning. So if you want to write that in your Bibles, when we get to that verse, you can put 540. They know what time of year it was. They knew it was a full moon, etc. So they know that the sun rose at 540. So shortly after 540 a.m., they assembled... Um, in the required hall of stones to formally condemn Jesus to death. That's the answer of one of your questions. Why did they assemble for this third trial? What was the purpose of it? To formally condemn Jesus to death. This third phase of the Lord's religious trial was merely to ratify the, the illegal decision made during the night. Okay? Israel's new day, however, was not going to have such a happy ending as Peter's. Israel's new day was a day of being set aside for some 2,000 years now. She has been set aside. God isn't finished with her, but in the meantime, he is working primarily through his church. She sinned greatly, 
as a nation when she followed her blind spiritual leaders right into the ditch of self-destruction by condemning to death her own Messiah. The blind leading the blind right down into the ditch of destruction. They crucified, had crucified by the Romans, their own Messiah. What a sin. And so her new day was not so bright as Peter's. It will be one day in the yet future, but not yet. And then for Judas, the alarm cock of God also sounded, but it was a sound of doom, not temporary doom like Peter and like Israel's, but permanent doom. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. So now let's look at the cock crows for Israel, and I'm going to read from uh, Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, and skip what Mark says. And go straight to Luke 22, because Luke gives us the fullest report of this third trial. All right? But first of all, let's just read the first two two verses in Matthew 27, where it says, When the morning was come, and that's where you can put 5.40 a.m. if you want to. (laughs) When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now that right there is all that Matthew tells us about the third phase of the Jewish trials or the third Jewish trial of Jesus. That's it. Not much there, right? It was a very quick trial. Mark tells us even less. Mark only gives us half of a verse. So I'm not going to bother with Mark. Um, Luke gives us the most, but let me just read verse 2 where it says, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. All right, now let's see what Luke has to tell us, because he's really the only one who tells us some details about this third trial of Jesus before Caiaphas and the gathered Sanhedrin. Luke 22, starting at verse 66. Luke twenty-two sixty-six. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. Verse 68, And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. This third Jewish trial was the climax of the Lord's religious inquisition. Because Israel's rulers had predetermined that Jesus would die, back in John 11, they had predetermined one man, it was expedient that one man would die for the nation, they forced themselves to disbelieve his claims to Messiahship and deity. All they would do, therefore, in this last trial would be simply to get him to again make his claims, and then they would pronounce him guilty of blasphemy as they had done in that uh, pre-dawn informal trial in Caiaphas's palace. But to give the appearance of legality, you know, so they could show the public that we did this legally, they wait till dawn. They wait till the day because you're not, you know, weren't, they weren't supposed to have a trial at night. So they wait for the sun to come up and then they go ahead and they meet in the prescribed temple hall, that hall of hewn stones. They meet in the right place at the right time. <laughs> but they're such hypocrites because once they, they gathered together, these leaders dropped all pretense of legality. Of course, it's really pretty difficult to appear legal when it was what day of the year? Passover. It was a feast day, and they were never allowed to have a trial on a feast day. And there were no two agreeing witnesses, were there? And the council itself had initiated the trial, which was another illegal maneuver. They had used the defendant's testimony to incriminate himself, and there was no defense counsel for him. 
There were no witnesses for the defense. There was no three-day delay before the execution. And the defendant, who is supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, has already been arrested without any charge. He has been bound, slapped in the face, mocked, and harshly mistreated by his judges. Can you imagine that, going to court and having the judges slap you around, spit in your face, blindfold you, mock you, hit, their, hit you with their fists and with rods? But they're going to make this look legal by having it after the sun comes up in the prescribed temple council chamber. I mean, truth and justice were completely disregarded prior to this trial, during this trial, and after this trial. And this is how they treated our master. So should the servant expect any less? This could happen to us just as easily as it happened to him. Well, Mark 15, 1, I'm not going to take you over there because he doesn't say much, but he does tell us that the chief priests had had a, a consultation. Now, the chief priests are um, really the leaders of, of the whole Sanhedrin. That uh, Caiaphas is a chief priest. And the chief priests were usually, generally, probably 99% of them were Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And, um, but they held a consultation, probably right before they opened this session. They consulted together, and this was likely to plan how they would proceed in this third trial and how they would also then turn Jesus over to the Romans because they, they wanted the Romans to kill him. And they didn't waste much time. After they had their consult, consult, they didn't waste much time getting started. And I couldn't help but wonder if they opened their session in prayer. Do you think so? I mean, the hypocrites probably did. Caiaphas probably said, let us pray. And he probably said, had some pious prayer. And then they opened up the session. Luke tells us that they immediately asked Jesus their question. Art thou the Christ? That's Luke twenty two sixty seven. Now, of course, he had already told them the answer in uh, the previous trial when he had said, Thou hast said, I am. And they had not believed him, had they? They had not believed him then. So neither were they going to believe him now because the hearts and minds of his accusers were full of willful unbelief and intellectual dishonesty. We have seen that over and over again. They were not interested in truth. Not one bit. Their minds were made up. They had already rejected. They had already dismissed or ignored the wealth wealth of evidence that was available to prove his identity. So his statement that he made in uh, verses 67 and 68 was really a statement against the injustice of their entire proceedings. In effect, he said to them, if I tell you, yes, I am the Messiah, you're not going to believe me anyway. And if I question you about the evidence available to prove this truth, and if I should try to have an intelligent conversation with you, an intelligent discussion about it, with you, you're not going to answer my questions. He knew this. They had tried this tactic before. Remember one time when he asked them about John the Baptist? He said, John the Baptist, is his message of heaven or of himself? Is he just speaking of himself? And they got together and they said, we can't answer him. Because if we say that John the Baptist's message is from heaven, from God, then he'll say, well, then why didn't you listen to him? Because he proclaimed that I am the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Um, but then they said, but if we say that John is just speaking of himself, the people will hate us because they know John is a true prophet of God. So what did they do in answering Jesus? Nothing. They didn't answer him. They've done this before regarding the resurrection. They did it before when he asked them about Psalm 110.1, which I won't get into because we'll get into it later again in this morning's message. But they, if, they didn't, if they knew the answer would incriminate them, what'd they do? They just kept silent. So that's what he's saying here. If I try to have a discussion with you, you won't answer me. He knew that if they wouldn't reason with him, they weren't going to release him. So he said, if I tell you, ye will not believe... And if I also ask you, ye will not answer, So, nor will you let me go. 
If I speak the truth, you're going to refuse to believe. If I ask you questions, questions to try to get you to think, you won't answer. And you have, I know you have no intention whatsoever of letting me go, even though I am not guilty of anything and you haven't been able to prove that I am guilty of anything. So he's saying to them, essentially, I have nothing more to say to you except this. And I love it. He said this. Hereafter, when you see me again, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power of God. Wow. That's kind of frightening. If you're being his judge and he says that, I think I thought, would have thought twice. Oh, let's have that conversation. <laughs> let's have that discussion. Well, as in the previous trial, we find here that the Lord again is making reference to himself as the Son of Man. That's a messianic title, which they recognized being taken directly from Daniel chapter 7. And with his claim to being seated at the right hand of the power of God, he was making another very clear reference to Messiahship, which was taken from Psalm 110.1, where it says, The Lord said unto... You should all know this by now. We've talked about it so many times. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is now the third time that Jesus has referred to that very critical verse in just three days. He talked about it on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Now it's Thursday. He brought it up in the second trial, and now he's bringing it up in this third trial. So do you think that this is an important verse? Yes, I think that he's trying to tell you and I, maybe we should memorize it. And maybe we should use it in witnessing to people that Jesus Christ truly is not just a man, but he is God. The Messiah wasn't just a man. He was God. The Lord was uh, not only using these two Old Testament verses to proclaim his Messiahship and his deity, but he was also, in using this and in saying this, he is giving a very serious warning to this council that as his enemies, they were going to find themselves one day under his feet as his footstool. That's a reference to the fact that one day... He would be judging them. And he was not only... So here he's not... He's clearly looking beyond the time of his suffering, isn't he? He's looking beyond... Um, beyond to his resurrection. I mean, he knows he's suffering now and that he's going to face death, that they're going to kill him. But he's, he's looking to his resurrection, to his ascension, and to even his being seated down at the Father's right hand. And remember who he's talking to? These chief priests are there, and they're mostly Sadducees. And what is he telling them? You're going to see me again. And when you do, you know, you're going to be at my feet. So he's telling them about resurrection. I, he knew that they were going to kill him. They knew that he knew they were going to kill him. And they were going to kill him. But here he's talking about his resurrection. And who else's resurrection is he talking about? Theirs. Because if they're going to see him in that situation, they being at his feet, they're going to rise from the dead as well. So he threw that in. Think of all the names he's giving himself here. Um, you know, son of man, Messiah, son of God, deity, I'm going to be your judge. And then we're going to see one more he throws in when he says, I am. But wouldn't you, if you were in their shoes, wouldn't this be a very frightening statement for those who are, you know making themselves the enemies of this one who says he's going to be seated on the right hand of God? If you were going to judge such a, such a one and condemn him to death, don't you think that it might be worth your time to do a little research about his claims? Especially when we see that they did understand, as we're going to get to in a minute, about that verse. They did understand it. And yet they didn't take the time. They just went ahead anyway and condemned him. You know, there are a lot of theologians, there are a lot of liberal theologians, and there are a lot of other religions and cults. Um, there are the Jehovah's Witnesses, there are the Mormons, there are the Christian scientists, um, um, the Muslims, and, and others, on and on and on, uh, that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and that say even that he never claimed deity. 
<laughs> what do they do? Do they cut out from the Bible all these crystal clear statements that he made during his religious trials? I mean, he, he made other statements, but just take his trials, for example. All the things he has claimed in these three religious trials. And uh, what, do, what do they... <laughs> I wonder, why, why do they think that he was convicted of blasphemy? I mean, his enemies, the Jews, realized what he was claiming. That's why they convicted him of blasphemy. Why did they accuse him of blasphemy? Because he claimed to be God. Exactly. So it's such a ridiculous statement for people to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's why he died. Because he claimed to be God. So anyway, when the Lord made this claim for the third time during the Passion Week, to be the fulfillment of Psalm 110.1, these, these Jews very clearly understood that he was claiming to be God's son. He had just referred to himself, look at what he actually said there in verse 69, he had just referred to himself by the Messianic title, Son of Man, right? Son of Man. <clears throat> but because these Jews, who were scholars of the Old Testament, because they really did understand what Psalm 110.1 states, they give themselves away when they ask him their next uh, question. When they ask him and say, Art thou then the Son of God? He had just claimed to be the Son of Man. And he was quoting from Psalm 110. But they got it. They understood that he was also claiming to be the Son of God. That's important. That little word, then, is very important. What Jesus had just said in reference to the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God led the Jews to understand that he was claiming to be the very Son of God. They knew this because they knew the verse to which he referred says, The Lord said unto my Lord. And we know that it actually in the Hebrew says, Jehovah said unto my Adonai, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Jehovah God was speaking to who? He was speaking to Adonai God, the son of man, the Messiah, Jesus, David's Lord. Remember, they see this verse in the Hebrew. They don't get confused like we do because we have two lords, right? A lord all capital and then a lord with just a capital L and O-R-D. But they could see Yahweh said unto my Adonai. Now they couldn't very... Who wrote this psalm? David, David, okay? So they could not very well accuse David of blasphemy, could they? Not David. I mean, David was their great and mighty king, the one through whom the Messiah would come. They knew that. Yet D David clearly called the Messiah, and they knew that this was a reference to the Messiah, who would come from his own lineage, his own descendants. David called him a name reserved only for God. Adonai is never used of a man. Adonai is a God name. So could they accuse David of blasphemy? And calling the Messiah Adonai? No. And they knew this. They knew that there was absolutely no other way to read and interpret this verse. And those Jewish scholars of Old Testament scripture knew what it was saying. And yet, you know, they didn't like it. But they didn't know what to do about it. It absolutely made God sound like he was more than one person and that he was having a conversation within his person to himself. Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. So what did they do with it? What did they do with this verse? Well, they did with it what a lot of people do with scripture that they don't like. <laughs> they ignored it or they, they uh, twisted it to have a different meaning. Meaning. Or when asked about it, they would just not answer, like they did when Jesus asked them about it on Tuesday. 
that's, you know, when he did. Remember how they were bombarding him with one question after another, trying to trick him up on Tuesday was a day of confrontation, and every time he silenced them so that finally it said no man durst ask him any more questions because they were just shamed every time they tried to trip him up. He embarrassed them publicly because they couldn't answer. Well, and then finally he said, I have a question of my own, and it was right from this same Psalm 110 verse 1. He said, the Christ, whose son is he? And what did they say? Well, that's easy. David's son. And then he, you know, came in for the kill. He said, okay, if he's David's son, then why did David call his son Adonai? And what had they done then? Nothing. They didn't answer him. They had no answer. He had gotten them. But you see, now, in this third trial, they give themselves away. They understood that that was the Son of God. So that's why they say, Art thou then the Son of God? I know that's complicated. I hope you got it. But if not, review it on your own at home. They hadn't answered him on Tuesday before the Masses, but here in the temple they do when they ask that question. And what does he answer them back when he says, Art thou then the Son of God? He says, Yep, he says, Yep, ye say that I am. <laughs> Which really means you say it because I am. And here he goes ahead and he gives them another title for himself, which is I am, the great I am. <clears throat> and you can imagine that as he said that, he said it and everything about him gave evidence of the fact that it was true. I can imagine that his posture, his composure, his countenance, his sturdy voice, sturdy, strong voice, and the authority that is behind that voice, all of it gave evidence of the truth of his claim. Ye say that I am. Don't you think that these men would have been scared to death to condemn such a one? I sure would have been. Or at least I think I would have been. But even Pilate, you know, think about it. We're going to get to Pilate in a few weeks. Even Pilate, who could care less about Jewish messiahs, even Pilate was a little bit leery about condemning this righteous man, wasn't he? He was uneasy with it. But these guys, under the leadership of Annas and Caiaphas, who I imagine were both there at this third trial, um, they did so anyway. They went ahead and condemned him to death anyway. The, and, and under the leadership of these two men, who in turn were under the inspired direction of the devil himself, the members of the high court, religious council of Israel, said this, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And then they condemned him to die. What a strange thing for them to say in light of the fact that because they did hear this confession from his own mouth and it was not permitted for a defendant to testify against himself and if he did, it was not to be considered that they really did need further witnesses. You get it? I mean, they have just had him incriminate himself, which was totally illegal. They should not consider his witness. So they really did need further witnesses. And yet they say, well, what need have we of further witnesses? And how about, you know, they did need more witnesses. How about this, you guys, for a change? How about getting some witnesses for the defense? How about going out there in Jerusalem, now that it's day, and finding hundreds and thousands of true witnesses, which you could find? How about that? Did they do that? No, they didn't do that. They had no intention of doing that. But what's interesting to me is that God did get his son some witnesses. This is another homework question, so listen up. It's absolutely unbelievable, too, where he got these witnesses, who they were. It's so I just see God has a really good sense of humor. They wouldn't go out and get witnesses for his son. So he goes out and gets some, and they come from some of the strangest places. <laughs> How about this for one? Witness number one, Judas Iscariot. <laughs> Judas comes back in the scene. Unexpectedly, he shows up in the temple to throw at the, the priests his dirty pieces, 30 pieces of silver. 
And what does he say to the chief priests and the elders as he does that? He says, I have betrayed the innocent blood. Matthew 27, 4. That is so significant. Witness number one, Judas Iscariot. I have betrayed not just innocent blood. I have betrayed the innocent blood. There's only one person who has ever lived who has had sinless blood, innocent blood. You can't say any of us have innocent blood, right? The innocent blood. That's Jesus Christ. Witness one, Judas. How about the chief priests themselves as witnesses? The chief priests themselves. You know why? Because they testified that the money Judas casts back at them was unclean. Because it was, quote, the price of blood, Matthew 27, 6. Now, by definition, we're going to talk about this again next week, but by definition, the price of blood refers to money illegitimately paid to falsely convict a man of a crime that leads to his death. And then they use that money to buy a potter's field, and that field is called the field of blood. So all the people in Jerusalem to this day call it the field of blood, which is an admittance to the fact that they use the money to falsely kill an innocent man. It's just amazing. Um, so they themselves are witnesses. And then how about this next witness? The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. You know how many times he declares Jesus' innocence? Three times. His wife has a dream. She comes to him and says, don't do anything to this just man. So she is also a witness. And then how about this? The thief on the cross who says, this man hath done nothing amiss. And then turns to Jesus and prays to him. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what about a Roman centurion? giving witness of Jesus' innocence. This man watched Jesus during all his hours on the cross, and he also saw how Jesus died. And the scripture says that this Roman centurion glorified God and said, certainly this was a righteous man. Not just a good man, a righteous man. Isn't that fascinating? How God provided all those witnesses. Well, at any rate, with great satisfaction that this early morning third trial of Jesus had proceeded so quickly and without any disturbances, Caiaphas, probably if he had a gavel, you know, hit, hit, hit the pulpit and said, court adjourned. <clears throat> so this was <clears throat> how the three-phased religious trial of the Lord ended. It had all been a huge farce of justice. The Jews had good laws for their courts, but good laws do not guarantee good judges. Hmm. Unfortunately, the character of the court officials can have more to do with the character of the court than the laws of the land. And all God's people said, hmm. <laughs> These corrupt officials took it upon themselves to disregard the laws when they wanted to and to use them when they came in handy for them or to twist their meaning for their own purposes. So on the basis of his own testimony, Jesus was declared guilty of the capital offense of blasphemy against God. However, since he was such still such a popular figure with the common people, the council did not want to be held responsible for his death. Otherwise, their own lives could be at risk. So they decided that they would get Rome to kill him. So they went to the palace of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. James Stalker, in his book, The Life of Christ, says this, quote, the Sanhedrin conducted Jesus bound to the residence of the governor. What a spectacle that was. The priests, the teachers, and judges of the Jewish nation leading their Messiah to the Gentiles to put him to death. It was the hour of the nation's suicide. End of quote. The cock 
had crowed upon Israel. Her great sin of rejecting her long-awaited Messiah was complete. And so her day of God's favor for some 2,000 years now was past. She would suffer severe punishment for her deed, as her history has only too well shown us, and even to today, right? Israel, more than any other nation, has suffered for having put to death her own Messiah. But one day, like Peter, she will repent and Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. at the time of his second coming, when she finally recognizes him and realizes what she has done. Well, um, I have now a special little, I hope this works. Oh boy, I hope this works. Um, I heard a couple months ago on BBN radio, and some of you may have as well, a message by Steve Davies, who is the pastor up at Colonial Baptist in Cary. And he had been teaching through the book of James. You know, the epistle of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, a man who grew up in the same family, in the same home as our Lord, and came to believe on his brother as the Christ after the resurrection and was the, the pastor and leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was later um, martyred to death. He was stoned to death by Caiaphas's son-in-law who was a man by the name of Ananus. It's in Acts 23. So when you hear in this message, um, Pastor Davies talk about Caiaphas' son-in-law, Ananus, you might think he got it mixed up because we know Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, but it was, you know, they just kept using the same name. So Annas had a son-in-law named Caiaphas. They were both high priests. Caiaphas had a son-in-law named Ananus. I would actually pronounce it Ananias, but Steve Davies pronounced it Ananus. But uh, anyway, he's going to talk about... Um, an archaeological discovery that has been made just in the past few years. And I wanted to share this with you because this is something you don't hear when you turn on the television or listen to the radio. Now, they will tell us if they found a jawbone of an ostrich or something that they say was one of our ancestors millions of years ago. But when they make a great discovery like this, the world is silent because this proves... You know, the unsaved world... When they hear of an archaeological discovery like this, they're not convicted to believe. I mean, that doesn't convince them. But what it does is it strengthens the believer's faith. And when I heard this in the car as I was driving, I just had a private little hallelujah session in the car. I was so excited. And I hope this will bless you. And I thought this was a good time to do it because he does this discovery not only involves James, the half-brother of Jesus, but he also talks about Caiaphas. And this is, you know, one of the last times we'll be discussing Caiaphas. I'm sure it'll come up again. But it does relate to our message. And um, he'll also tell you what an ossuary is. So... Let's hope and pray this works. Once in a while, the archaeologist's spade will unearth something particularly meaningful to biblical text or character. One of the most remarkable discoveries in modern history, discovered in our lifetime, still basically obscured by a culture that doesn't want to take note of the implications was discovered just a few years ago. It was the discovery of an ossuary. The word ossuary simply means, in easier terms, a bone box. Looks like a miniature coffin carved out of limestone with a removable lid also carved out of limestone, about that long, about that deep, and about that tall. Once a deceased Jewish person's body had returned to dust after really about a year or no more than two, the family would take the skeleton, polish the bones, and place them in their ossuary. In fact, had our Lord not risen from the dead, after a year or so, he would have been taken off that ledge where they placed him in that cave, and they would have cleaned his bones and put him in an ossuary. Of course, there will never be the discovery of the ossuary of Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. There are no bones left behind. Regardless of Israel's attempt to sell the story that the disciples had stolen the body, the body was never found, and neither were his bones. There was and is no ossuary of, of Jesus Christ. Now, what's even more interesting about the discovery of ossuaries 
including the one that was brought into the public eye in the year 2002, is the fact that archaeologists and historians have revealed to us that the use of an ossuary only lasted for a few years. The practice only lasted for about 90 years. It began about 25 years before the birth of Christ, and it ended abruptly at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So this was kind of a passing fad. This was a practice that did not go back in time for for centuries. It, it, It lasted only for the briefest period of time when the Jewish people began to to practice this or observe this. And and by the way, hundreds of ossuaries have been discovered and identified as they have been unearthed. But then this one particular ossuary was discovered, having been relatively uh, ignored. In fact, it spent centuries in a cave and then still ignored by antiquities dealers until 2002, when a private dealer showed it to a guy named Andre Lemaire, who was a leading paleographer from the University of Paris. And he immediately noted the inscription on the ossuary. It was marked unusually with several names, which was out of the ordinary. He immediately sensed the potential genuineness of the inscription. He had personally studied hundreds of ossuaries. This inscription in Aramaic was so faint that it would take a binocular microscope and then later a scanning electron microscope to confirm the genuineness of this stunning engraving brought to light just a few years ago. On the side of this ossuary were carved these words translated to mean or to say... James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Isn't that great? I mean, I waited a year before I could tell you that I wanted to get here a lot quicker, but I wouldn't let me. And by the way, this discovery sparked a a, a firestorm, you can only imagine. If, If this is genuine, the world will have historical evidence outside of scripture of James the son of Joseph and the brother, by the way not cousin but the brother of Jesus the adopted brother, half brother of course, we know from scripture that Jesus would have been legally adopted by Joseph bringing him into the line legally of his forefather David, giving him the right to the throne which he'll one day sit upon making James and and Jude and a couple other brothers and, and at least two sisters his siblings and what's even more stunning is that no ossuary, no ossuary from the first century discovered included the name of anyone other than the deceased and sometimes the name of the father, except this one, James, the son of Joseph, and oh, by the way, the brother of Jesus. Oh, that is just so fantastic. Now, I'm fairly convinced that James would not have wanted it to say that. I I think he was satisfied to be known in the way he opened his letter. James, a slave of God and of Jesus Christ. That was enough for him. But not for the family, evidently. And probably not for the assembly, as they sat around and figured out, okay, now, now what do we want to put on it? What do we want to carve into it before they place his bones in the box? He wasn't just any James. They wanted to identify him. You see, this discovery creates then an explosion. And if you think that, you'd be correct. It immediately launched what scholars call the forgery trial of the century, which is really interesting because we're only in the first decade of the century, and they're they're already calling it the, the trial of the century. Why? Because they know what it means. They know what's implied. And so the Israeli Antiquities Authority denied immediately its validity and went on record as claiming it to be a forgery and that the name of Jesus must have been added later, centuries later, so that the church could be given what they called something, quote, too perfect, end quote. 
the government began legal proceedings against the owner of the ossuary. Poor guy for letting it out in the open. The trial would last three years. It would involve more than 75 scholars and witnesses, generate over 9,000 pages of documentation. And at the end of legal proceedings, which by the way was October 2008, after more than three years in court, the Israeli judge, and you can imagine the pressure, the Israeli judge ordered the case dismissed lest there be, quote, further embarrassment to Israeli authorities. Because it was so obvious in its authenticity. One newspaper carrying the story reported that the government's case finally collapsed when the government's star witness, the former chairman of Tel Aviv University's Institute of Archaeology, finally admitted upon cross-examination in court that the name Jesus had been carved at the same time as the names Joseph and James. And they date the ossuary to A.D. 63, which is really interesting as well, because Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that James was killed in A.D. 62 after lying in state for at least a year, they polished his bones and put them in a box. And then they sat around and said, now what shall we put on it? What shall we carve into it? And they did what is now for us the only historical, engraved object with the name Jesus, tying it to James and Joseph, the only one. The only one. It was confirmed as authentic. In fact, in the last few years, the ossuary has been displayed in different museums. Here it's displayed in, um, I believe, Toronto. The inscription translated into French. And it brings a couple of thoughts to my mind. Number one, the testimony of James to the world did not end with the ending of his letter. Even his bone box testifies to his Lord. And get this. I mean, think about it. I'm, I'm going to say it again. This is this ossuary of James marks the only time Jesus' name appeared carved in stone. He can't erase it. Now, i got to tell you, when I, when I read that, and I've, I've studied this now, and I've thought about it, if I were Jesus, I would have left name tags all over Bethlehem. In Jerusalem, I ate here, I walked here, I slept here, I rose from the dead here, I'm coming back and I'm going to stand right here on the Mount of Olives. I, I would do that. I would have done that. I remember being in fourth grade, I probably told you this before, but I was told to stand on the corner of the room. I don't know what I did wrong, probably nothing much, but I was told to go back there and stand by my teacher, Mrs. Jolly, who was not living up to her name that day. I probably had a lot to do with it. But she said, go back there and stand in that corner. And I took out my pen and I carved my initials. And I, I remember thinking, I'm, this school is going to remember the injustice of it all. I mean, Jesus Christ could have carved his name everywhere. Think of the injustice. Truly. Beyond the record of Scripture, you find very little. You know why? Because archaeological evidence doesn't create faith. It encourages ours. Jesus Christ has chosen to carve his name into your heart. And into your transformed life. But every so often, I just love it. Every so often, God allows something to surface some writing from some ancient historian, some scroll bound in a clay pot, that some shepherd boy throws a stone in a cave above the Dead Sea and they find the Dead Sea scroll. Some, and, and, and just a few years ago, the ossuary of James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Let me make one more point. The testimony of God's servants 
ultimately influence far more than the testimony of the world's elite. I found it interesting in my study. I want to show you another picture. I found it interesting they did discover another ossuary of significance. This is the bone box, the ossuary of none other than Caiaphas. Caiaphas, if you remember your gospel accounts, was the high priest that condemned Christ. It was in the courtyard of this man's private home where Peter denied the Lord. It was Caiaphas who, when the church was created upon Pentecost, called Peter and, and, and James and John and the others and said, You men be quiet. Don't speak up Jesus again. See how ornate it is? I mean, this is the ossuary of a mover and shaker. This is an important man of influence and significance. He's, he's the leading spiritual mover and shaker of this generation. I mean, this, this is what you'd expect. This is Westminster Abbey style. The ossuary of James, by contrast, is plain and ordinary and simple. It's like the difference between a mahogany coffin and a pine box. By the way, the son-in-law of Caiaphas, a man by the name of Ananus, who became high priest after Caiaphas, basically Caiaphas and his family owned it. But Ananus took advantage of a political vacancy when the governor of Palestine died and the other one had not yet arrived. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, informs us that during that political interview, Ananus moved quickly, brought James to trial to recant his belief in his half-brother being the Messiah. James refused. He was found guilty of blasphemy and stoned to death. Before anyone was barely aware of what was going on, James was dead. The Jewish population was so incensed by his actions that King Agrippa removed Ananus from his role as high priest and for the most part the reign of Caiaphas and his family was over and all that was left was an ornate box. think of it, James is influencing millions of people to this day through his life and letter and legacy and the name and family of Caiaphas and Ananus, if it were not for Scripture, would have long been forgotten. Listen, your influence, brothers and sisters, your influence in this life is not finished when you die. And it is not determined by how long the funeral procession is when you do. Your legacy is not the expense of a funeral. Whether it's mahogany or pine. In ways we have no idea. And James would have never ever dreamed this one. But it is the quiet influence of a slave of Jesus Christ, a praying mother, a faithful father, a diligent Sunday school teacher, a children's worker, a deacon, a volunteer, a secretary. It's, it's, the, it's the legacy of an honest mechanic. Do you know any of those? I do. One goes to this assembly. The legacy of honesty impacts me. It's, it's a caring doctor who prays with his patients. It's a diligent student on the campus that lives a pure life without knowing half of it who leaves a legacy for the glory of Christ. 
of whom he or she is a slave. 